All right, my friends, it is 7 o'clock straight up, and we have a lot to do tonight. I'm excited about tonight, so I invite you to find a seat. Uh, tonight's your first night. I want to introduce myself. My name is Nathan, and this is Pastor Chuck. He's the pastor of Family Ministries here at Grace. Well, with that, let's open in prayer. Well, dear God, we thank you for this one hour to allow your word to satiate our curiosities. And uh, we pray that uh, you are honored in what we do, and your word would... Uh, would change our minds, that, that our minds would be changed to yours as opposed to trying to force uh, our minds to change yours. And so we lift tonight up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Wednesday nights are all about getting to know your Bible, so I hope you brought your Bible tonight. We've done that in lots of ways. We've spent 20 weeks in studying 2 Corinthians, and uh, we've done men's and women's Bible studies, but tonight we're doing it a little different. You have texted in your questions, the questions that you have, the kind of curiosities on your mind, and we are now going to spend the next session, the spring session of prime time. We're going to allow God's Word to answer those with, uh, with God's principles, and so that's what we're doing tonight. Uh, the purpose is not to stump the chump, as some of you have so <laughs> graciously called this. You're looking at two chumps, okay? <laughs> and we are stumped all the time. And so it, that's easy to do. And so that's not what we're doing. And we're not here to talk ad nauseum about really high-minded things. Paul calls that wrangling about words and that it's useless. That's not what we're doing here either. What we're going to do is we're going to use God's word to uh, answer questions that we have, legitimate questions. We want to know how to live our lives, or we want to have a perspective that would change the way that we live, and are, we're going to allow God's Word to, uh, to do that. The format tonight, we're going through this quick. We have 10 questions that we're going to answer tonight, and that's in 60 minutes, and here I am wasting part of our time in introducing this to you. And so we have like five minutes per question, all right? And so the, there's a problem with that because some of these questions that you've asked are great ones, and some of these questions that you've asked have been discussed by Christians for thousands of years. Uh, and there are thousands of pages written on these topics that we're discussing tonight. And so we have five minutes, all right? And so the goal here is to just set you up with some principles, set you up with a little scripture that will allow you to follow through and prayerfully make decisions in these areas. Most of these are areas of liberty and making decisions in them, and we just want to set you up with some principles that will help you make the decisions for yourself. If you're a married couple, I would encourage you to discuss this together on your way home and, and read the Bible together and come to conclusions on your own together. But we only have five minutes, and so you're going to say, well, what abouts, and you forgot those we didn't forget about, and we know about the what does, but we have five minutes. And so you're going to get that, and uh, then it'll set you up for your study and you following through with God and his word and, and uh, making decisions uh, biblically in your own way. Also, one other thing to, to note, uh, your question might have been changed slightly up here just to bring a little bit of clarity. You know, when you text, you're not really... Uh, thinking, and so uh, I've probably clarified some things on here. So if it mentions something about your topic and it's not using your same words, either someone else asked it in a, just a little different way or we just refined uh, your words a little bit. We have a counter up here, a, a timer. And so when we click to a question, it says five minutes and it counts down 49, 48, you know, all the way down to zero. And, and when it gets to zero... It turns red, and it counts 
in the negatives. And so if you're saying, wow, he's going really long, we already know, okay? The red's already blinking at us. We already know all of these things. So I'm just, we're just going to jump into this, okay? The first question I'm going to take, and I'm glad someone asked this question because it really sets us up to kind of describe, is it spiritually immature or unstable to ask questions? That's a legit question. Yes, it is. Let's all go home now, okay? <laughs> Save a lot of time. <laughs> we're just done. Uh, no, I, I don't think it is immature. I don't think it's unstable. I think it's just the opposite, that asking questions to quench our spiritual hunger, if we're, if we're unsure in an area, it's the hallmark of a believer to quench our thirst by asking questions. I've been reading through the Bible in the, in the New Testament, like many of you have, like our Bible reading plan, and we're doing that in our, my men's small group, too. And so I just want to read you all, some of the questions that I've seen in the New Testament just up to the first few months of reading. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, Peter asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? That's a legitimate question. Matthew 19, verse 25, the disciples were asking Jesus, then who in the world can be saved? That's a good question. Then John the Baptist asked a question in Matthew 11, Verse 3, are you really the Messiah we've been looking for, or should we look for someone else? That's a legit question. Uh, in Matthew 22, a lawyer comes up and asks him, uh, what is the greatest commandment of the law? The Pharisees asked him about the disciples and their hand-washing. Uh, the disciples of John asked Jesus about how come, how come we fast and your disciples don't fast. All legitimate questions um, all in just the first few books of the Bible that you've all read along with me in the last couple of months. Um, and then in, in Luke chapter 2, uh, Mary and Joseph, they, they lose Jesus. Remember that one? And, uh, and when they find him, they say, son, why have you treated us this way? I think that's a question that every parent asks their teenagers. <laughs> why have you asked us? Okay. <laughs> And so there are lots of questions. I think it is spiritually healthy to satiate our, our minds, especially when there's some sort of um, lack of information or some sort of spiritual ignorance. It is the hallmark of a believer, of a maturing Christian, to ask questions. And Jesus, interestingly, always answers the question in one of two ways. When Jesus answered the question, it was either a direct quote from the Old Testament, one, or... If he didn't quote the Old Testament, it always fit within Scripture, which is kind of a crazy idea, meaning it fit with the Old Testament, fit in the parameters of the Old Testament, but it also fit within the parameters of the New Testament that hadn't even been written yet. Now, that's pretty crazy. The rest of Scripture, the entirety of Scripture, after Jesus answered these questions, all matches and fits with what Jesus said. We don't have time to look at all that. But all that to say, is it spiritually immature or unstable? No. I think it's the hallmark of someone to uh, satiate their, their spiritual ignorance with questions and going to God for the answers. I think it's a healthy thing to do, all right? Look, I saved you a minute 50 there, Pastor. Wow. All right, so next uh, question for uh, you, Pastor Chuck. <laughs> do we see our loved ones in heaven? Will we care, or will Jesus be our focus? Well, that's a great question, and uh, actually the Apostle Paul addressed that question, or similar anyways, to the Church of Thessalonica. We don't actually have the, the church's question recorded in uh, Scripture, but we do have Paul's answer to that question. And it's in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. So if you want to turn there, we're going to be in there for a couple of verses. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. And I'm just going to read that. 
But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as to the rest who have no hope. So with, with Paul's statement here, uh, we can actually draw a couple of observations. Observation number one, uh, the church obviously has a concern concern about their loved ones that actually have died in Christ. Second observation from that uh, verse, we see that church is grieving about their dead loved ones because they've actually been misinformed about Christ's coming um, by some false prophets. And we know that because in the second letter of Thessalonians, we know that uh, the false prophets actually were saying that about Christ. They were saying that he already had returned. You missed the boat, so to speak. And so Paul was addressing that concern. And so I'm just going to pick up in verse 14, where I left off in verse 13, where it says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Paul is informing the Thessalonican church, those that actually had died in Christ, referring specifically to their loved ones, uh, were, they're coming back with Christ. They're coming back. It hasn't happened already. And wow, that's, that's very encouraging, I'm sure, when they heard that. Uh, continue on, verse 15 says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So he uh, addresses their concern, but he also gives them validity because he says it's not just coming from his lips it's actually coming from God's lips he says this is from the authority of God um, so that I'm sure that encouraged them and comfort them as well and there's just going to be this great reunion in the air basically that's what's going to happen I mean Christ's going to come back with the loved ones the souls of those who have already died and those who are on earth still that are Christians are going to meet them in the air so it's a great reunion in the sky and so uh, he finishes off that particular area, verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. So Paul says to comfort one another in regards to this hope that he's telling them about the afterlife reunion in the sky when Christ does come back. So to answer that question, I say yes, it is the answer. Um, we will see our loved ones in heaven, but you know, I think the second part there where it says, will we care? I think so, because if he's telling us about our loved ones and answering this question that we're actually going to see them, I believe we're going to care about that. But the last part there I want to mention too, or will Jesus be our focus? And I would have to say not or, but also and more so, for we will actually not only see Jesus, and not only care about Jesus, but we are going to be worshiping him. I'm done. Look at that. I got four seconds. All right. <laughs> what about the people we don't like? Are we going to see them in heaven too? <laughs> All right. Let's move, on to the, uh, let's move on to the next one here. Is birth control abortion? Whew. 
Okay, um, this will probably take a little more than five. I'll have to save it somewhere else. Let's first start with, is birth control biblical? And then we'll go from there. Um, the Bible talks nothing of modern birth control methods, short of abstinence, I suppose. Um, and so this is an area of liberty uh, that we can use some principles to kind of look at, to make some decisions in this area. And the first principle that I kind of want to highlight is when life begins. And it gets to the abortion aspect of this a little bit. And in Psalm 139, verse 16, David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us where life begins. It says in verse 16 of Psalm 139, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. That's where life begins. An unformed substance. And in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. And so David says that God knew him when he was unformed, this unformed substance. Well, what is that? No arms, no legs, no heartbeat, but God knew him anyway. So when was that? Well, to the best of my knowledge, the best of what I can get from that is a fertilized egg inside of a mom. That's the unformed substance. That's where all the DNA is ready to make up a future David with his arms and his legs and his heartbeat. Um, that is what is being referred to as the unformed substance. And I realize that this is a hotly debated topic, but I believe right there is where life begins. Right where the egg and the sperm meet, that is where life begins. Okay, And so if that is our presupposition that David is correct here, then we can follow that math backwards or forwards to figure out birth control. And so if it's where an egg and a sperm meet kapow, that's where life begins, what about eggy all on its own? If you have little eggy all on its own, you set it on a table for 10 million years, is it ever going to turn into a person? No. It, it, because it's not, it's not life. It's not a human. And so it can sit there forever. It's not a human. As a matter of fact, a woman's body releases or eliminates an egg every single month. That's not abortion because it's not life. Same on the other side. What about sperm over here? Could you sit sperm somewhere for 10 million years and that turn into a person? No, because that's not life. As a matter of fact, a body just absorbs it if it's not used. And so neither one of those two things are life on their own. So let's get to this birth control question real quick. Um, keeping an egg and a sperm away from each other is not abortion. No, no matter how close they could get, and depending on all the methods of birth control, they could get really close with like a condom, or they could get stay really far apart with abstinence, you know? It's just... <laughs> Two, two different distances of sperm and egg being away from each other, right? Eh? Neither one of them is abor abortion is killing that unformed substance. That's what abortion is. Wherever life begins, that, that fertilized egg inside of David's mom, where God knew him even there before there were no arms and no legs. Before that, though, it's just sperm and egg gets, gets absorbed because it's not life yet. But once it's life, all of a sudden, then that is where life begins in that um, unformed substance. And so it'd be easy for me just to sit back, drop the mic, and move on and say we're done. But I realize there's more to this question here, because then there's the, the chemical abilities, you know, to 
for birth control, like the pill. And some people argue that the pill is abortion because it doesn't allow a, um, this unformed thing to implant. And so that's the argument that some people make. And I'm not here to argue. <laughs> I, I'm not here to argue at all. The Bible doesn't talk about any of, any of this at all. So if the Bible is silent, I will remain silent. However, if you feel like if you're convicted in your heart that that would not be appropriate for you to do, then don't do it. There are a million other ways of birth control that maybe you can find a, a way that it works for you on. Um, so if you're convicted in your heart in that area, then don't do it. Okay, remember that this is all kind of based on our, our study of liberty. If, if your conscience is feeling the pressure there, then don't go any further than where your heart allows you to, to go. Before we get off this topic of kids, of kids and abortion and, and all this, I, yeah, I'm in the red. I'm in the red. I gotta hurry. The Bible talks a lot about kids and how great kids are. All right. So we're talking about. I know we're talking about birth control, but this is what the Bible says about kids. The Bible says that kids are gifts in Genesis 33:5. The Bible says that kids are a heritage in Psalm 127. The Bible says that kids are a blessing in Luke 1:42. That they are a crown to the aged in Proverbs 17:6. And one of the reasons that you get married, that a man and a woman gets married in Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, is to be fruitful and to multiply. It's kind of hard to be fruitful and multiply when you're on birth control, if you know what I mean. Okay? And so, not that birth control is wrong ever, but remember, the kids are wonderful. <laughs> and and I, interestingly, grew up in a family where I have many very close relatives both married, who on purpose chose never to have kids. And they, I think they must have missed Genesis 128 about the whole be fruitful and multiply part. Um, but that is one of the purposes of marriage. It's a joy in marriage. Now, some people can't have kids. They can identify with the barren people mm -hmm. in the Bible. And that doesn't mean that you're no less of a family. Mm -hmm. um, there is definite pain there. I have someone very close to me who is in that position. And we have another question in a couple of weeks. I'll tell a little bit more of that story. But that doesn't make you any less of a family. A family is a man and a woman becoming one flesh for life. That's where family begins, and then kids are just a joy within that family. Okay, Chuck, sorry. Got to make up on that sucker. Okay, here's your next one. What does it look like to seek God's kingdom first in day-to-day -day life? Okay, um, let me just read that verse in Matthew 6.33 that they referenced. Uh, just so that we, we know where that's coming from. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Um, so what I want to do to answer this particular question in, in referencing Matthew 6.33 is actually go to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. I think this is really the best uh, outline in Psalm 37, just a few verses, that really kind of give us a good idea as to uh, seeking God's kingdom and righteousness first. And so I'm just going to read verse 3 of Psalm 37. It says, Trust the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Well, how do we seek God's kingdom first in regards to that verse there? Well, it says trust. Trust God. Do good and then dwell in the land, which really means just be in, the, in God's presence, uh, be with him so that you could actually cultivate faithfulness. Um, so trust, do good, and faithfulness are really the action of what God wants us to do. Uh, it kind of lines up with his righteousness. 
Verse 4, let's look at that. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So delight ourselves in him, um, really, as to be glad, excited about some of the things and his ways, just being in his presence, being, you know, like lining up to his face, because you trust in him, you're going to him. Um, and so delight in him is another uh, do um, for seeking God's kingdom first. Psalm 37, 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. So again, what way here do we seek God's kingdom first? Commit. Commit and trust our ways to the Lord. So, so we can actually put Christ first in our lives looks like just this way. Trust in God rather than ourselves, rather than others, and rather than the things of this world. And then we are to do good to others, meaning that we're, we're not living um, just for ourselves. We're not you know, trying to cheat people. We're not lying. We're not stealing. We're not hurting them. Um, but we're actually loving them as we'd want to be loved and looking for the be- their best interest at heart. So to trust God and do good to others will actually cultivate uh, faithfulness. And that faithfulness that we're talking about that's being cultivated as a result of doing those things that we just talked about uh, produces us to be a person of character, of just holding to the word uh, our promises and holding to responsibilities that, uh, in our roles as really an example that God is for us. He, he's faithful to us, so we're just following his example. And to delight in all that, that action is really to just to be glad, excited, passionate about looking um, just to be with God and do the things that he's asked us to do. And so to seek God's kingdom first, trust God, do good to others, build faithfulness, delight in God, all his ways, and then commit our lives to him and his ways. It actually can all be summed up in one particular verse in Romans 12, 2. It says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So basically, to seek God's kingdom first uh, looks like in every day, day to day, is to, to not be conformed to this world so that we can actually follow uh, God so that we can be transformed. So not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed into God's ways. And th- that's all for the purpose so that those that we come in contact with that can know Jesus by just our actions of doing. And so what does it look like? Trust, cultivate your faithfulness, do good to others, and uh, commit yourself to those ways every day. Uh, Next question. Can a grounded church work alongside a heretical church for the cause of Christ? Um, First, I want to define two really churchy words there. Ground, a grounded church and a heretical church. A uh, grounded church, I would assume that we're referring to uh, conservative, teaches the Bible, the Bible is literal, um, a simple gospel of Jesus being God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for the sins of mankind, rise from the grave, 
And so that then any person who puts their faith and trust in him, belief in him, uh, has eternal life, uh, is rescuing us from the only natural result of our sin, which is hell. I'm assuming that's what we mean by a grounded church. And so then we have this other term called a heretical church, or the term is heresy. Um, that word is thrown around in Christian circles, particularly on the Internet. <laughs> if you see heresy or they're a heretic on the Internet, <laughs> that's where you usually see it. So when you hear the word heretic, kind of perk your ears up a little bit and try to figure out what type of heretic they're referring to. There are two ways this word is used, um, and I'm going to share with you the way that it's often used and the way that it should be used. The way that the word heretic should be used is described by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, where he describes heresy. It says, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Even, and here's like a, a, a description of a heretic denying the master, capital M, Jesus, who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And so here's how you should define a heretic. It's someone who denies who Jesus is and his simple gospel that he brought. Okay? And so someone who says that Jesus is not God um, or that there is no trinity, um, those would be heresies because that's who Jesus is. That is how he describes himself and also the message that he brings. So if someone says that the way to heaven is by doing something good or uh, creating a good camaraderie with God by, by being such a good person that he finally welcomes you into heaven, that's a heresy because that's contrary to what Jesus taught about the simple truth of the gospel. Now, it's often used, unfortunately, the word heretic is often used for somebody I disagree with. <laughs> I disagree with them, and so they're a heretic. Okay, and that is detrimental to the cause of Christ. That is detrimental to the church at large. You do know that you will disagree with people and they can still be saved. Okay? They, they will still be going to heaven. If they understand the simple truth of the gospel, who Jesus is, and the simple message that he brought, they will be in heaven too. Even though you have very dramatic doctrinal disagreements, and legitimately so, they can still be in heaven too. Don't rob them of their salvation by calling them a heretic. Even the apostles in the Bible disagreed with each other. They didn't call each other heretics. They just had some disagreements. But with that rant over, let's answer this question. But we kind of have to define terms so that we can address this. Can a Bible-teaching, conservative, you know, Bible church get along with a heretic church? And so if we define heretic in the way that I think heretic should be defined as someone who does not believe Jesus is who he says he is, that they have a different gospel, that they don't believe in the Trinity, the answer becomes obvious. Um, no. <laughs> and the principle there is in 2 Corinthians 6.14, if you're looking at principles, and that's the one where it says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Where's the commonality? They're not believers. That's the point of a heretic is it's a false person, not even saved, having a different gospel, why would you want to spend any time around them? Okay? So if we're talking about that kind of heretical church, heresy, you know, like a Mormon church, no, we don't sign up with a Mormon church to go do some ministry together, but the truth is, I've never met a conservative Bible teaching church ever meet up with a Mormon church, and I've never met a Mormon church that wants to hang out with us either. For that description, 
I'd have never seen that happen. Now, for the other way that often this word heresy is described, that is where things get, you know, a little different. Where if we're just describing someone who is saved, that they believe the simplicity of Jesus uh, saving us from sin and, and they're going to heaven, but I just disagree with them on pretty large major doctrinal issues, uh, legitimately so, but they're still going to heaven. Can a uh, grounded church and that kind of air quotes, heretical church, I don't like that term, I, we think of lots of better ones, can they get along? The answer is sure. Sure they can. As a matter of fact, there is a place that Paul describes that in Philippians uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 15, and maybe I shouldn't read it, I'll just, let me just describe it to you. So in uh, Philippians 1, 15, 16, 17, and 18, Paul's in prison, and there's these people out there preaching the gospel um, because uh, of selfishness. Uh, and they disagree with Paul so much so that they're preaching the gospel almost a way to get back at him because he's in jail. <laughs> and obviously they have disagreements, but the context of Philippians is they're already saved. And Paul says, whatever. <laughs> whatever. As long as they have the gospel right, they have a lot of other things wrong, but they have the gospel right, and so if people are going to get saved, hey, more power to them. Okay? And so can that, those two kinds of, they can don't know if you'd want to team up with each other like that on purpose, um, just cause more angst, and how, why do you want to hang out with um, those people if you don't have a lot of common ground, but it is possible. Remember, it's God is the one who saves people. It's not us. We can't woo people to God. God is the one who draws people. God is the one who saves them. God used it in Numbers 22. He used a donkey. Remember that one for Balaam? If he can use a donkey, he could use even people who you think are donkeys um, <laughs> to get the, get the message out, you know? And Paul's like, what else? If people are getting saved even because of these jerks, great, all right? So we'll move on, Pastor. Where in the Bible does it say that the world is round? I love this one. I can't wait to hear your answer. Thank you for giving me this one. You know... <laughs> When I first saw this question, I actually, you know, I thought, wow, are you kidding me, really? But, you know, as I started to think about it, I thought, wow, it actually is a great question. There was actually a statement, it's not up here, but there's a statement that uh, followed this. It says, I've heard a couple of Christians say that the earth is flat and that we have been lied to by the government. Okay? <laughs> so, with that, I mean, to answer this question as to whether the Bible says that the world is round or spherical, however you want to say it, um, I would first say, well, does the Bible actually say that the earth is flat? Well, if you believe the earth to be flat and you read a verse like this in Revelation 7-1, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Then I guess you'd say that that's proof enough, right? I'm sold. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the earth is definitely flat, according to that. But wait. If you believe that the earth is round or spherical, and you read this verse in Isaiah 40:22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Well, and I guess you believe that the earth is round. Well, the truth is that neither of these particular scripture prove the earth is flat or round. To have these two verses uh, as proof texts really kind of takes them totally out of context. 
So the Revelation verse is really speaking about the seventh seal uh, judgment that's being poured out on the earth during the tribulation time. It has nothing to do with the shape of the earth. And the Isaiah verse is about revealing to man God's position of authority and superiority as the creator and the keeper of the world. So to answer the, this first part of this question, where in the Bible does it say that the world is round? Nowhere. <laughs> Nowhere. It, it doesn't. It really doesn't. But in regards to that, that statement that I mentioned, that, uh, that they think that uh, it's just a hoax, you know, that um, it really is flat, government's uh, just holding everything back, well, that kind of thinking just came from uh, really some members of a flat earth society. Yes, there's actually a society called that. And they believe that the earth is flat. And here's their proof. It looks flat. <laughs> That's their proof, really. And because of that, that all the pictures that they've received from space, from satellites, whatever, they're nothing but a fabrication to the round earth conspiracy that is orchestrated by NASA and the government. So, I'm an eyewitness that the Earth is round. Okay? Just believe me. I was at 36,000 feet in an airplane, or jet, and I could see the curvature of the Earth. You really can at, at that altitude. But if that's not proof enough for you, my wife has traveled going west from LAX in a jet to China, to India, to Turkey. She's going west still to Turkey. From Turkey to London. From London to L.A. again. She's still going west. If the earth was flat, she shouldn't be here right now. <laughs> <laughs> she fell off the edge. <laughs> but I'll close with this. Paul warns us about things like this, that people turn from the truth. So let me just read to you in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desire and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So we are warned not to waste our time with these myths and the conspiracy theory groups. If they want to make a big name for themselves by ignoring facts, let them. But we as Christians... Let's not get caught up in all that. You've handled that way more seriously than I would have. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you for your question. You, you asked a lot of great questions, even like this one. It makes you think, what does the Bible say about even the Bible? It, the Bible matters to our everyday life. That is the purpose of these, this spring prime time. It's great to learn about how God works and who he is as we read throughout the pages of scripture. But this is about the very practical aspects of God's word. We can go to his word and we can get answers to your everyday curiosities. Isn't that great? That the God of the universe who created it all reveals truth to us to even answer questions that actually don't really matter, but kind of help us in the way that we live our lives. And so... It's so great, and so that's what we're doing here. I, just The scripture, the Bible, can answer many questions that you're even unsure of, except for the flat earth. <laughs> I was sold on the four points. You know, the, you know, the Bible says that the sun rises, the, you know, the, the Bible talks about the sun rising and the sun setting and all of that, and sometimes 
people who are skeptical, they're skeptics, biblical skeptics, they point to those points in scripture and say, look, the Bible doesn't know anything about science because it talks about the sun rising. You know, we know that the sun doesn't move, that it's really the earth revolving around the sun. See, God doesn't know what he's talking about. Except when we look at like our phone, look at your phone right now, it'll tell you when sun rises. We still use the same terminology <laughs> still today, even though we know that it's different because that's just our perspective from planet Earth. You know, So just remember, as you're reading God's word and some skeptic says, well, look, God doesn't know how the earth works because he talks about sun rising and sun. Yes, we still use the same terminology still today because from our perspective, that's really how it is. Anyway, let's move on. Will we see our pets in heaven? This is why you all came tonight is for... <laughs> is for this. How many of you are pet owners? Who are the pet owners in the crowd? Wow. Okay. How many of you hope that you see your pet in heaven? <laughs> How many of you hope you don't see your pet in heaven? <laughs> what has your pet done to you? Well, as the movie says, all dogs go to heaven. Well, let me read you a couple things. Uh, the Bible does talk about animals being in eternity. Did you know that? Isaiah 65, talking about the new earth, it says the wolf or the dog and lamb will graze together. In 2 Kings 2, verse 11, it talks about Elijah being taken up into heaven, you know, horses. Um, in Revelation 19, it talks about when Jesus comes back, he's riding a white horse. My daughter, Noelle, is so excited that there are horses in heaven. Like, this, is so, this is so awesome. In 2 Kings uh, chapter 6, it talks about these invisible horses and riders that are dispatched to earth. So where is this white horse today that Jesus is going to ride in on? Got to be in heaven, right? I mean, that, that's where he's got to be. Now, here's the question, though. You know, is that horse your horse, you know? Is it going to be your horse? Is it going to be your wolf or your chihuahua? Um, <laughs> or your lamb, your cat? Is it going to be that way? And some Christians that really hope that that's going to be, they point to Scripture for that. And they point to Psalm chapter 36, verse 6. This is the Scripture they point to. Uh, regarding God's perspective of animals and, and his bringing them to heaven. In uh, Psalm 36, 6, it says, O Lord, you preserve man and beast. Ah. But you kind of have to read this in context to understand what this is talking about. This is talking about a, a time of judgment where there was a time in the past, meaning before today, where the world was in such a depraved position that God came and demolished, judged the entire world, but he rescued humans and animals. When was that? That's the Genesis flood, right? Noah and his family and the animals. And so that is what Psalm is pointing to. And so is your husky, is your kitty, is your fishy? And I, I don't think so. I don't see anywhere in the Bible that talks about pets sinning or Jesus dying for them, or him taking them to heaven. I just, I don't see that anywhere. So I guess if the Bible stays silent, I guess I should. But 
you know, based on the fact of knowing how you get to heaven, uh, meaning putting your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Um, Jesus came to die for the world, but he didn't die for the plants, and he died for people. And so I just don't think probably, but pets are wonderful. They're unique. We don't eat them. We don't shoot them. They're unique. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except for Chuck's. You don't want to be Chuck's pet. <laughs> They're placed here for us to enjoy, and we do enjoy them. In heaven, yeah, I guess we get to wait and see. All right. Next one's for you, Pastor. All right. Should Christians have collections or hobbies? Okay, well, you guys are waiting for this one, right? Well, I'm just going to jump into this one. This is, uh, I'm kind of echoing a little bit of what Pastor Nathan's been teaching on this series of Liberty, um, because this kind of lines right up in some of the principles he talked about. So we have great freedom to do what we want. Uh, in fact, 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So Paul's speaking right here. There's great liberty uh, that has been given to us in this verse. And in the context of this verse, it is talking about that the veil has been removed. And that veil is uh, the hardening of our hearts. And the way it's been removed is that those who put their faith in Christ actually uh, have the Holy Spirit indwelling within them. And that is giving them knowledge and understandings and taking that veil away. Um, of the hardiness of the heart. So there's great freedom in that, now that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, but there's also great responsibility. So here are three biblical principles of responsibilities. 1 Corinthians 6.12 All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So here we have our freedom we're responsible to discern by the Holy Spirit that lives in us to look at things that may not be beneficial for us and possibly draw us under their control. So that's the principle one that we have to keep in, in check within our freedom. And Galatians 5.13 is another one. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So here we are told... Again, that we have this freedom, but we have a responsibility to discern by the Spirit of the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of, of Christ that lives in us, whether that we have uh, are free to do or anything that we want that opens up a window of opportunity to sin. Okay? So that's principle number two. Um, and another one, 1 Corinthians 8 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So here we're told again, uh, with that freedom, we have a responsibility with the spirit that lives within us, whether we can take that freedom to do something that's actually going to cause our brother to sin against his conscience. So with those biblical principles, as kind of the backdrop for this question, should Christians have collections or hobbies? Yes and no. Um, yes, if it doesn't lead to sin, addiction, or making my brother stumble. No, if it, if it leads to sin, addiction, or making my brother stumble. Let's say we have a yes here, okay? 
it's just for, for giggles. Let's say we have a yes, all three areas, okay? There's something else to consider with that discerning spirit from the Lord. Is my doing, my hobby, or my collection keeping me from fulfilling God's purpose for me in my ministry, in my responsibilities and obligations as a servant of the Lord? Just maybe I shouldn't do it if it is. And I, I'm talking about here ministries, you know, just normal ministries. I mean, we all have ministries. We have family, right? We have our, um, you know, husbands and wives and moms and dads all have responsibilities within the family. That's their ministry. Employees, right? We have a job, so we have to be a, uh, a good employee, a good employer. Um, so those are areas that we have responsibilities as well that we have to fulfill. Um, as a student, right? Okay, got to have that responsibility in education. As a, church, a member of a church, you have responsibilities and ministries as well. And as you volunteer and serve here at, at the local body church, you have a lot of things that you're responsible. So the question is, even though you have a yes, are any of these areas going to keep you from carrying out the purpose that God is, has you doing ministry in your life? Final thought, though. Also, when answering this question, having the discerning spirit in Christ Here's a verse that I, I think also allows us to think a little bit more beyond uh, the normal, the three principles, as well as even our ministry. Second Timothy 2.4 No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. We're all soldiers of Christ, and we don't get involved in the things that the civilians do because we are a soldier of Christ. That's the example he, he's drawn here. And so really the, the, the question then is, um, well, if my hobby or my collection, is it pleasing to God? Is it pleasing God? So that's another area. So yes and no. So now you can surf eBay to get your Star Wars bobblehead. <laughs> but only at lunchtime. <laughs> and I went over on that one, brother. Right. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> okay, some Christians feel that once they are saved, that there is no need to repent of any future sins. You get the question there? Uh, is that true? That some Christians feel, well, I guess it obviously is true that some Christians feel that way, but, but is that the way that it should be? That once someone is saved, I mean, once you're saved, you're always saved. Um, is there a need to repent of their future sins? And the answer is, just like Pastor Chuck's, the answer is yes and no. So there's three principles that we're going to move through here. Principle number one, salvation is free. That's principle number one as we answer this question. Salvation is free. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, including continued confession. That would be a work. If I have to continue confess my sin to maintain my salvation, that would be a work, right? It says, not a result of works that no one should boast. Salvation is completely free in Jesus Christ. Second principle in Scripture about salvation is that our salvation is secure. It's um, unlosable, and that is in... Uh, 1 Peter 
chapter 1, verses, I guess we could probably do 3. This sets it up. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, listen to all the security in these next verses. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, that's pretty secure, that is undefiled, that's pretty secure, that will not fade away, that's pretty secure, reserved for you in heaven, that's pretty secure, which is protected by the power of God. Salvation is secure. You can't climb out of God's hands. Um, and nothing else, including unconfessed sin. Okay? Remember, when you're saved, your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And it's free, not something that you did to gain that. It's God's grace that allows that by our faith and trust in Jesus. And so salvation is free, and it is secure. So can you be saved and still have unconfessed sin? The answer is yes. The question, though, is should it be like that? And, of course, the answer is no with the third principle. The third principle is Christians confess their sin to maintain fellowship with God. Christians confess their sin to maintain fellowship. So the first principle is salvation is free. In Jesus Christ, it's God's grace. The second principle is it's secure. You are forgiven. But thirdly, though, Christians confess their sins not to maintain their forgiven status. They confess their sin to maintain their fellowship. And that's what First uh, John 1, 9 says. Uh, says, or 8 and 9, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. You're a liar if you say you have no sin. And then look now, you're a liar, so you sin, and so, hey, we're on the same boat. And then it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, unfortunately, this verse is often used to describe a person's initial salvation, his initial forgiveness, turning to Christ. But that is robbing this passage of its context and of its meaning. This verse is not written to people who are not saved describing their salvation experience. This is written to those of you who are already forgiven. Your sins have already been forgiven, past, present, and future. And so listen to this verse again, now knowing that this is written to you who are saved. You who are saved, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if he's not if he's not re removing our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, because that's already happened, what kind of cleansing is he doing then? What is the cleansing even talking about if we are already forgiven? Well, you go to John chapter 13, and that talks about Jesus washing Peter's feet. And Peter's saying, you don't need to wash my feet, Jesus. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. No part is talking about fellowship between God and a person. And so when you sin, that is the dirt that gets us all dirty, and we lose our fellowship with God. We don't lose our forgiveness. We don't lose our salvation when we sin or have unconfessed sin. We're still going to heaven, but we lose our fellowship, our closeness. You feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. You feel like when you read the Bible, it's just a bunch of nothing. Uh, you're around other Christians, and you're not encouraged. Well, 
Is there things that you have done that you know are wrong? The Holy Spirit's poking, 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 and you just resist the poke, and you don't desire to, to confess that? When I say confess, I just mean apologize to God. Apol- I'm sorry, I shouldn't do this. You're right, it's sin, I'm wrong, I shouldn't do it, and I need your help not to do it with God's Holy Spirit power to do that. And so when you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, wash that sin away so that it can maintain our fellowship with him. And so can a Christian have unconfessed sin? I guess they can. It's, it, unfortunately, it's someone that has a really hard heart that they've resisted the Holy Spirit's leading in their life. And as the Bible describes a calloused heart, that's a dangerous place to be, by the way, for a Christian. God could take you home early if <laughs> it gets too bad. But it's not supposed to be that way. That's what First John 1, 9 is talking about. Confess your sin often. And so that you don't have to worry about this. Okay? You are going to heaven, but confess sin maintains your fellowship with the God that is in heaven. So when you apologize, Jesus washes that dirt away, and so you can maintain your fellowship. That's his ministry that he does all the time. In two weeks, we're going to have communion where we get to remember that in real life. And so I'm inviting you to that ahead of time. All right, Pastor. This is going to be our, our last one. All right. What's the difference between repentance and remorse in Scripture? Is it okay to say I'm sorry? All right. Well, let's just jump into Scripture here. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul is speaking about the Corinthian church here that, uh, that was made sorrowful by his first letter that he wrote them, discussing all the things they did wrong. They were kind of misguided. They were sinning. They were Christians. They knew the Lord. They're going to heaven. But they they were misguided. They were doing some things that they shouldn't have been doing. And so Paul writes them a letter and uh, really rebukes them. And these verses give a spiritual microscope that allows us to peer into the hearts of the Corinthian church. Two things are happening. Their heart is sorrowful about what they did, and it brings repentance. And so we're told that actually this first letter revealed all the things that they were actually doing wrong and sorrowful for them, but uh, not because they actually suffered any consequences from it. I mean, there's natural consequences that God has given and poured out when we do sin, but Paul's talking about something else in verse 10 here that I read to you, that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. See, Paul, when he expected if they didn't change based upon the letter they wrote, Man, he was coming down hard on them. He was going to bring them judgment. He was going to actually rebuke them, physical consequences for their wrong. And what he's saying here is that that didn't happen. And so he did not have to come. And so he says this sorrow actually came from the will of God. So they revealed their wrong by Paul, and it was the Holy Spirit that was in them that convicted them by being aware of the sin that Paul wrote to them. And so repentance then comes from that sorrowful thing that Paul's talking about, that it's God's will. It's from the Holy Spirit. They're convicting them. And so repentance just means a change of mind. Change of mind and heart. 
regarding the sinful action. So, just in other words, a godly sorrow led them to see their sin as God would see it that actually produced a change of mind and heart. So to answer our question, what is the difference between repentance and remorse? Remorse actually leads to repentance, a change of mind and heart, but only if it's godly remorse, meaning that the Holy Spirit is the, the action that's changing the heart. You cannot repent, actually, without remorse or without being sorrowful. But you actually can be sorry or have remorse without repentance. And that is what Paul's talking about in that end verse here, verse 10. Regret that leads to repentance brings salvation because there's restoration with fellowship with God. The two parties are now restored. But regret with no repentance brings death and suffering because the mind and the heart has not been changed. It hasn't been changed regarding the sin. So that being said, the answer to the second part there, is it okay to say, I'm sorry? <laughs> well, yes and no. Yes, if it leads to repentance, right? And no, if it doesn't, there's no repentance because just saying you're sorry doesn't bring restoration if there's no repentance, okay? It's like when you get caught, you know, when you're a kid and your parents catch mm-hmm. you, like, oh, I'm sorry, Mom. You're not sorry. You know you're not sorry. <laughs> you just sorry you got caught. Yep. I like to watch cops TV shows, and the, the criminals always, when they're handcuffed against the police car, they're always sorry, you know. They're always sorry. I'm not sure there's a lot of repentance going on. All right, well, it's 8 o'clock straight up, and it's time for us to close in prayer. God, thank you so much for this one hour, and we thank you that uh, you and your faithfulness have revealed so much in your word. Um, It is uh, rich, deeper than we could ever plumb in a million nights of one hours, but we're thankful that we can do this for one hour, and I'm thankful for these people, these Christians at Grace who want to learn from your word. We pray that, um, I pray that we're blessed because of your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.